1: Welcome back to the New Books Network Gender Studies podcast. My name is Taylor Fox Smith and it's my pleasure to introduce Erica Johnson, lecturer in technology and social change. Her fascinating research applies a feminist agenda to the construction of the medical body and healthy subjectivities. Materializing in the collaborative book Gendering Drugs, Feminist Studies of Pharmaceuticals, Ms. Johnson is on the frontier of feminist technoscience studies. Today's interview will be sure to challenge our preconceived notions of health and gender, particularly as they relate to the production, advertising, and normativity of pharmaceutical intervention in our everyday lives. Erica, thank you so much for
0: joining us. Thanks for having me here. This will be fun.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, to start us off, I'm wondering if you could talk us through your personal academic journey and how you were led to write Gendering Drugs and how the collaboration came about for you.
0: Sure. This book is the um, sort of final work of a five-year research project that I was doing with um, so six other people at that started, well, it started about six years ago now. And um, we were particularly uh, C- Cecilia Osprey and Celia Roberts uh, from Lancaster University, Celia and um, um Sisi was from uh, Lenshepen University, where I'm actually at as well, Lenshepen University in Sweden, we were sitting around thinking about how we could look at discourses of pharmaceuticals and um, try to sort of um, mine out what they say about the healthy adult subject. And what I thought we could do would be to look at discourses that were um, about pharmaceuticals that were applied to or used by bodies that were approaching the adult subject so young uh, young adults or youth and then bodies that were about to leave the healthy adult subject uh, people on the very ed- end of life all of us the three of us there was three of us starting, starting these ideas we all have a background in feminist techno science studies so we all wanted, for all of us, it was very important that any research collaboration we would be doing would have a very strong feminist take on it. And I thought, well, okay, we have to get money to do this. I'll write a grant application and see if we can get some funding, but I'll do this very honestly and say this, this research is going to have a feminist science studies approach. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be feminist. And uh, I sent that into the European Research Council and they said, yes. So uh, we got the money to do this a 5-year project which funded the three of us and then three graduate students and a postdoc and we spent the we've spent the last 5 years looking at different types of pharmaceuticals right, and the discourses around them and discourses as as the rest of this uh, book makes clear we we envision them as sort of in material discourse of entanglements in a very feminist science uh, way but we looked at HPV vaccines for, mm-hmm. for cervical cancer or other types of cancer, and the use of hormones um, for bodies that are approaching puberty, in, and then we also looked at medications for Alzheimer's patients, and uh, prostate issues for older men, and, and the, the work, I mean, we all took this in different places, because, you know, we're social scientists, and so we work alone a lot, and mm-hmm. um, we, we all produced our own books or dissertations. But then, throughout the project, um, we had applied for money to be able to have a, a recurring workshops where we would talk through what we were seeing and try to think analytically about our different projects together. And what we ended up seeing was, unsurprisingly, because of you know the questions we were asking, that there was a lot of material in in our our work um, that talked to gender or sex and gender or trans depending on what kind of terminology you want to use. And so that's how we, um, at the end of the project, decided that we would put together parts of our book into one book and call it The Gendering Drugs, which is what this book was. Amazing.
1: What an excellent platform then for me to go straight into questions about the book. And I'll do this chronologically. So I'll start with part one. There are three chapters that elaborate a feminist critique of scientific practices, particularly early in the pharmaceutical production chain. Um, You mentioned the Alzheimer's disease study that relied on the processes of sexing of flies. This part also looks at the pharmaceuticalised prostate, a chapter which you authored, and then also the role of pharmaceuticals in the health of transgender children. And this scholarship explores how the gendered body is both produced in and by medical technologies. And I'm wondering if I could focus on your chapter, actually, which in the opening of you mentioned the role of Our Bodies, Ourselves, which was a Boston based feminist self-help women's health publication from the 1970s and how this plays a role in your feminist research agenda. And your chapter on the pharmaceuticalized prostate really tackles the conundrum that Iron Reich and English recognised in the 1970s, that a feminist critique of medicine criticises the patronising sexist Western medicine, whilst also at the same time demanding access to its promise of health. I'm wondering if from here you could expand upon your research and how your use of feminist critique kind of disrupts this notion that the male body is not only normative, but universal?
0: Sure. Yeah, I mean, all three of these chapters have the body somewhere in the background and our understandings of the body. And and this is an area where feminist technoscience and STS and medicine and gender studies have worked a lot theoretically. And it's been a very useful body of theory to draw fun from mm-hmm. when we've tried to approach these questions about pharmaceuticals and the body at different stages of the scientific and medical discourses. Um and one of the, one of the key elements that I bring into my work is understandings, a lot of which is start out with this early grassroots um, critique of medicine that kind of critiques and questions the ontological basis of medical knowledge and tries to question how it is that our knowledge is made, and how we and others can claim to have the right to say things about our body and what is health. This is just as applicable to male bodies as female bodies, though a lot of the work in this book uh, also tries to get beyond the binary of male-female. But if we're looking at the prostate in much of the medical literature, it is clearly associated with the male body. though That's something that we question later. But anyways, looking at male bodies as bodies that are attributed, gendered, and sexual expectations and ascribed these biomedical discourses, we can then start to open up that body and and put it into a context and look at the material discourse of practices that are making it rather than just saying that this is a universal neutral body of medicine, which, you know, in some ways it's been used for that, but not always. And when you look at the, the small details of practice around medical Practice, we see that that isn't necessarily the case. At the same time, there's a lot of work within feminist techno science studies that has questioned, for you know, decades, the distinction between nature and culture, and tried to um, question why we think some things are natural and some things are cultural, and we sort of erase that uh, hyphen between the two of them. Then in this work. I rely a lot on ideas that are developed by Karen Barad about uh, the interaction uh, within phenomena of knowledge of how we know things and how we can create knowledge about those things and then what material discursive cuts are made to create things like a male body or the gendered male body and also disease because then you have to, you know, if we're making bodies and then they're calling them disease, then we're also making those diseases in the practices of medicine. So what I've done in that chapter is I looked at clinical guidelines for how to treat lower urinary tract and symptoms that are attributed to the prostate. And these are symptoms that are often related to urination, but they're often treated by trying to treat the prostate. And one of the main treatments or the, one of the first courses of treatments is to prescribe alpha blockers that, for some men, will help them to urinate more uh, more naturally. Nature, of course, you're being in quotation marks. Uh, but it's a, a medication then that the man will have to take for the rest of his life. And so one of the questions I approached this medication with was, what does it mean to have a concept of health, you know, healthy urination that requires the daily ingestation of a pill? like daily taking of a medication. And this is something that we've talked about a lot within with women's bodies, you know, why are we medicating ourselves in order to be healthy? Everything from the birth control pill to, you know, different types of hormone treatments. So it's there was a lot of work I could draw on from early feminist critiques of medicine that could then be applied to male bodies there. I'm not uh, alone in that section of the book in doing that. I mean, Tara Marabi's work on the flies in the laboratory also looks at questions about how flies, which are then sexed and gendered in the lab, uh, create knowledge that is applied to human bodies later. And so she's been looking at how uh, we can go even beyond the um, human-non-human divide and try to see that in practice in the laboratory. Human, non-human bodies are conflated into one type of body discursively to make knowledge about the human from the fly. And of course, is Celia and Cron's work on uh, trans children is also looking at bodies and trying to open up our understandings of how bodies are gendered or sexed and, and um What types of identities those bodies are allowed to have? Both as adults, they're taking, they're being inspired by work on trans from adults, and then applying that to a children, a child's body.
1: The way that this book is structured is then quite interesting because we do get these really rich key concepts in that first part. Words like sexing and the gendering of the body, and the use of the body as kind of this matrix of analysis and. Also trying to understand what we mean by health and how health and the body can produce knowledge, not only in the body producing perhaps disease or um, antigens to overcome disease, but also in the way that we understand binaries, the male or the female, human, and the non-human. I'm wondering if we can then move to part two, which is titled Creating Subjectivities for Patients in Advertising. So we've kind of moved away from this production chain of pharmaceuticals so far as the laboratory goes, and coming into looking at the ways that pharmaceuticals are marketed beyond an individual subject. So the way that pharmaceuticals insert themselves into familial and romantic relationships, both through commercial images and discourses. There's a really interesting point how pharmaceuticals can become a non-human participant in relationships, whether it be uh, in the health of couples or in the parenting role of mothers. I'm wondering if you could elaborate for us on what it means to prescribe relational subjectivities and why it's important to understand the role of market forces in the gendering of drugs.
0: Sure, yeah, for people who haven't read the book, these are two chapters that look at several different advertising campaigns. Uh, In the first chapter, uh, I and uh, C.C. Osprey, analyze three advertisements, two for dementia, one of which um, is a sort of a take on a movie poster with the big word dignity above it. And then a couple, an older couple, um, obviously standing very close to each other in an affectionate embrace, um, and they're representing the carer and the cared for, though it's unclear who's doing the caring and who's doing the cared for. Um, and, and then this is for a drug that's supposed to uh, delay the onset of Alzheimer's or delay the progression of the disease. And then there's another Alzheimer's advertisement that we look at, which has a um, an older woman uh, with a young girl sitting on her lap and they're reading a nighttime, a good night story uh, together. And uh, the text in that one speaks about how this uh, medication will allow the person, the older person, it's assumed, uh, to continue on reading stories to the ch- child, the grandchild. And then we look at another advertisement for a an alpha blocker to uh, help with urination issues in the prostate. And uh, this advertisement has two cars, well a car and a truck meeting on a, a country road, uh, and the drivers, male drivers of both of them, are waving at each other. And in, in the, the one car is a blue convertible with a woman sitting next to him and they're off obviously on a pleasure ride and the other one is just an older man in his truck driving somewhere. But the interesting is that thing is that both of these vehicles are pulling a trailer behind them and on the trailer is a porta potty. So this is speaking to the feeling of constant urges to go to the bathroom that Mm -hmm. men with some prostate issues have. And the drug then is being um, put in there as a replacement for the porta potty So the idea is you can decouple your trailer if you take the drug and you won't have to bring your bathroom with you wherever you go. It's very poignant, actually. And what we look at in all three of these advertisements is the way that um, sure, drugs um, are being through advertisement prescribing certain behaviors and identities for the subject who is supposed to take them, but that subject is not working in isolation and is not alone, and that subject and the drug advertisements themselves are also prescribing particularly particular relationships for him or her. Whether this is within a heterosexual matrix of caring in a couple, or whether it talks about caring relationships uh, across the generations. I think the grandchild uh, picture there is particularly poignant, because not in, not in the image, but obviously somewhere in the background, there must be a, a middle generation there, a parent of the grandchild, who is also the child of the parents, uh, of the grandparent. So it's a, a an intergenerational uh, relationship where caring is happening on all levels. And then there's the the ones with the, um, uh, the porta potties on the trailers talking about, you know, the pleasure of a heterosexual relationship out on a pleasure ride, but also two men meeting and having the same issues, you know, in, about their aging prostates there too. And, and as we looked at these advertisements, and in the other chapter, we look at uh, HPV and daughter and mother relationships, we realized that by engaging relational discourses, the pharmaceuticals are also opening up both the discourse for more people to look at the advertisement and see it, but also for more users, Or they're articulating that the drugs are used by more than just the person who's ingesting them. The, mm-hmm. the drug is helping to facilitate relationships at many levels in social, um, uh, social belonging and social responsibility. But anyway, so, so that, that was sort of the political aspect of why we, were, we thought it was important to analyze these relationships, to sort of articulate that there, there is a broader audience to these the advertisements, but also to the actual pharmaceuticals themselves, and that we could expand the definition of a pharmaceutical user or you know, to be, include more than just the person to be ingesting. Great.
1: Right. And then, so you did talk about there is a particular chapter in part two which focuses on um, the HPV vaccination and the way that that is advertised. And there is a chapter that looks at how that advertising really emphasises the parental role of the mother. So speaking to what you're saying about the pharmaceutical drug itself serving a purpose for not just the user but for those around them, but also the those around them having a responsibility to either supply or to have knowledge of that pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. in part three you expand upon that focus on the hpv vaccine and you noted before that it is a drug that is gendered female due to its role in preventing uh, cervical cancer and, and other problems in the female reproductive system but it does also have a role for its male users uh, in part three, uh, you give three in-depth case studies of the way that HPV has been presented in three different nation states. That's Colombia, the UK, and Austria. Um, and you highlight the role that, of gender in the pharmaceutical industry, as well as the health and subjectivity. Would you like to elaborate on one or possibly all three of those national case studies and give us an understanding of why um, a cross-national comparative analysis is important when we're looking at discourses of pharmaceuticals.
0: Right. So one of the great things about this project was that it gave us three graduate students. And, you know, of course, we don't own the graduate students, but we were able to work with them and, you know, to some extent, direct what they were doing. And um, above all, able to um, have them placed in different places at different universities and with different focuses. And then we also had a postdoc who happened to have done his PhD on HPV in Colombia with Celia Roberts. So we were able to look at HPV in the UK context, in the Swedish context, in the Colombian context, and then um, also in the Austrian context. Austria being very interesting because like Australia, actually, it is one of the countries that does encourage vaccination of boys. You know, we, we all came to this within feminist science studies and, you know, its background in STS. So, of course, we were completely OK with thinking that HPV would be very different things in very different contexts, that it's multiple, that it's not, you know, one ontologically discrete thing that is moved from one place to another. But that but by being able to study it in these different contexts, we were able to see very different HPV vaccines being created through very different uh, discourses that involved and involved different interests. The Swedish case, for example, uh, that we looked at in the chapter here on on advertising, it was able to show a discourse that, especially prior to its being um, established in the, the school run vaccination program, was approaching parents and mothers with this idea that motherhood was about responsibility and ensuring the, the child's future health and that that responsibility could be done through the consumption of and um, prior to its inclusion here, in, in paying for the HPV vaccination for the children in the Colombian context Oscar was able to see how the the discussions about HPV changed first from being something that would be provided to those who had a, a, an assumed increased need because they were in groups that were related to sexual practices that might be exposing them to infection, and then as it also became part of a state-run program of vaccination, then in the HPV discourse moved away from its connection with a sexually transmitted disease and moved into a discourse that um, emphasized state benevolence and the egalitarianism that the state was supporting by encouraging women to have um, or allowing women to have a healthy female adulthood by vaccinating them as they approached their teenage years. In the UK context, the study that was done there ended up looking at uh, people who are hurt by the vaccination or who are associating health issues with vaccination from the HPV um, vaccine. And here it became very clear that girls were being asked to carry the pharmaceutical burden of vaccination for the sake of the herd or the population's future health. And that woman, Alejandra, she ended up um, asking at the end of her chapter, what would it mean If not only girl bodies, but also boy bodies were asked to carry this pharmaceutical responsibility or this pharmaceutical burden for the health, for the sake of the herd. And that's why it was so interesting that we were able to look at Austria and include that context, because there in I think it was 2014, they made a shift and moved the vaccine into a um, from being a vaccine for girls to being a vaccine for boys. Uh, this was largely related to the the decision that you no longer needed to vaccinate with three shots. You could actually only vaccinate with two shots, and you would have the same coverage. And that reduced the cost per invi- cost per individual so much that the state was able to finance uh, the vaccine for the entire population of children at a certain age. But what it did then was that it also meant that the vaccine was no longer related to cervical cancer only. It was now related to a, a wider number of cancers, so like throat cancer, penile cancer, anus um, cancer and cervical cancer, and that it was related to um, infection in the herd versus um, just preventing cervical cancer for girls as they were became women. Then they were discursively able to construct this as a vaccine that would break a chain of infection and at the same time help all of the individual's bodies stay healthy rather than um, just being something that would prevent girls from getting a sexually transmitted disease. It, it was really fun to be able to have this many different close studies of the discourses in different countries, actually.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating how this feminist science agenda, what your book does so fantastically is do it in a transnational way. Like the methodology itself adapts and transplants itself, not only to different, healthy and disease-related contexts, but also different national contexts. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. as we get to the final chapter where you actually conclude the empirical findings of the book and bring into the discussion an umbrella concept of refraction, I'm wondering if perhaps you could not only explain to our listeners what you mean by refla- by refraction and how it can be applied in a gender or a feminine and or feminist critique, but also maybe give us an overview of a feminist techno science agenda for all our listeners who are studying in either the gender studies fields, sociology fields, looking at social change and technology. If you could give us as listeners a bit of guidance as to what that means in our scholarship, as well as explaining refraction. (laughs)
0: <laughs> sure i don't think we can do well but i can i can try right so what like i said when we started this project we really wanted to have a feminist agenda but you know how how do you define what a feminist agenda is that's kind of hard we tried and i think you know somewhere in there i have a text about um a feminist agenda trying to Look at issues of social justice and inclusion and opportunity, not just for women, but for, you know, all humans. And we sort of take this one step forward in many of the chapters and talk also about non-humans, particularly animals, but other non-human, trying to break down these divides between um, all, all sorts of divides through a critical study. I, I think a lot of feminist work has been an attempt to challenge existing power structures and also discursive ones Uh, but sometimes discursive power structures are a little difficult because initially they can be sort of invisible and um, at least for me i find it easier to challenge them if they can be articulated or if we can if we can articulate what is being said to us or about us as embodied subjects and who is doing that saying who is it who is it you know who's the voice where are they what are they against whom can we protest or deny or disagree with these discourses, or, you know, in this conundrum about medical treatments, also, what can we embrace? But also, the, the thing that I find difficult sometimes is trying to articulate discourses. And as much as I'm really inspired by and use this understanding of, like, the material discursive and the way our world is a Entanglement of the material and the discursive, and we can't really draw lines between them. And we have to think about how there are, you know, there's not some sort of one discrete ontology that it's, you know, I sometimes get uh, bogged down in that type of analysis. And it's, I think it's great. And I like the idea of material discursive cuts that within those entanglements are done in practice iteratively that make things or discourses, you know, that make the world as we define it through practice and understandings and cuts. And those cuts are articulating very specific norms or values. Um, But still, it's hard to see and articulate um, on paper or in an analysis. So kind of one of the things that I thought we could do, or I could do with this book, would be to throw out the metaphor of refraction as a way of thinking about how the material objects that are made in these cuts, which are made, they're arbitrary, and they're done in practice iteratively, like I said, but then we end up with a thing that we use as a trope, maybe, to, you know, talk about our material world, in this case a drug, if we say the HPV vaccine we have a thing there, an artifact, or to use old network theory terms, an ectant, that can be, I suggest, used as a way of refracting the discourses that it was originally entangled in, in very specific contexts, to maybe create a spectrum of visible actors and concerns and values um, from that discourse. In that way, purely metaphorically, just help us to articulate these discourses, to see them and talk about them, and then eventually protest or embrace them. And I, and I think it became really clear how that could work when we were able to use HPV in these different nation-state contexts, and how the same vaccine, and I'm using same in, in quotation marks again as well, it became very different things. And was used by very different people who had very different concerns in these different contexts. And they happen to be bounded by nation state boundaries in the study. But I think that's more an artifact of the type of ERC funding that is available uh, than it was necessarily of the subject. You could also claim that what we were doing was looking at discourses that were bounded by concerns, you know, vaccine injury versus the use of the vaccine as a tool of the state. Um, or, you know, there are lots of different ways to cut these t- different types of discourses and bind, bound, create boundaries around them. Um, but by being able to compare them, we could see that the actual HPV vaccine could articulate very different concerns and actors involved around it in these different discourses, in material discourses and tangents. Does that make sense? It's kind of, you know, sometimes I'm like, well, maybe this isn't very right <laughs> We can do the last chapter and <laughs> see if it's, or, yeah. No, I think that metaphor is
1: so invaluable because it steps us away from the really in-depth case studies that this book takes on board. and it is a read that is not only fascinating but you're also dislocated each chapter into a new relationship or a new body or a new vaccine in quotation marks and by having that metaphoric concept at the end of the book i think there's a real uh aha moment as a reader that you not only see the whole book you've read in a brighter light but i think there's also a takeaway for scholars students and teachers alike for how is this book now applicable to scholarship and research that I do? Or how can I apply this book to a a critical analysis of the world around me? That explanation was perfect. No critics. Um, I'm wondering if you could let us know what's next in your scholarly journey after a book like this, do you continue down a similar path? Have you taken on new projects from the book? And is there a place where our listeners can follow your projects, a Twitter or, or a blog, um, or even just letting us know which university you're at so we can uh, follow which publications come from
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I guess I didn't mention that, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. I was working on a, um, a study about Viagra and Swedish masculinities and how the concepts of masculinity were challenged by this global pharmaceutical as it entered into Sweden um, but then also how Swedish masculinities challenged the ideas about Viagra here in Sweden. So the local and the global of pharmaceuticals, uh, the global pharmaceutical. Anyways, uh, from that I started seeing that Viagra was being prescribed in Sweden uh, often to men with prostate issues. So I was like, well, what are these prostate issues? And I started looking into the prostate, and I just got fascinated. I, I just, I, I, I just was like, well, what is the prostate? And you know, from a feminist techno science perspective, and how how can we know what the prostate is? What medical technologies are used to know it? How do we define it? What is healthy? What is not healthy about a prostate? What is normal and pathological? And sometimes with the prostate, that is the same thing. The normal becomes pathological, and so I um. I've started personally working on the prostate and couldn't let it go. So a <laughs> few years ago, I ended up writing another grant application to um a project that was called A Constant Torment: Tracing the Discursive Contours of the Aging Prostate. And, you know, I don't know if this says more about the um the bodies that make up funding body decision bodies, um mm-hmm. but we got the money and it was a lot of money, so we're now nine of us working on this project and we're anthropologists and sociologists there's a sexologist there's organizational studies people but we all sort of have an sts background and uh, a lot of us have a feminist technoscience background and that's what i'm kind of focusing on right now still the prostate is just really what i think about all the time and we'll <laughs> be thinking about more and more and not just the male prostate but i'm going to leave that out there as a teaser for you for everybody um and to follow me i guess You know, I'm so middle-aged, so I have a website. I don't Twitter or anything, but I've got ericajohnson.se. You can check out my Linkerping University website, too, but just check out ericajohnson.se and you can probably find more stuff there.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Erica. It was fantastic.
0: It's been great fun. Thank you.